Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Mint Mobile. The best part of spring cleaning is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash freak. That's mintmobile.com slash freak. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash freak. Upfront payment of $45 required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on their first three-month plan only. Speeds are slower, above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? Here's how it works. You add your car to your garage to track its market value and cash in when the time is right to sell. Track both your car's historical and projected value. When it's time to sell, easily secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. What did you have for dinner last night? Pasta with a mushroom sauce. Grilled cheese sandwiches. Artichokes and cardoons and capers. We had leftovers. I would call it a chicken Kiev. Meyer lemon fennel treat. I just got a hot dog on the street. What did you have for dinner last night? And more important, why? Do you spend a lot of time thinking about what makes it to your plate and how it got that way? About what cooking really means and how much of the past we should drag into the future? In this episode, you'll hear from some people who spend all their time thinking about that. So go ahead, grab a fork. We'll wait for you. From APM American Public Media and WNYC, this is Freakonomics Radio. Today, we hit the kitchen with two chefs, one a throwback, the other a future gazer. And later we ask, how antisocial can you be on a social media site? That's right, eating and tweeting. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Raise your hand if you really like to eat. Yeah, me too. What's not to like? Food is awesome. It's even fun hearing people talk about food. Something that's timeless, really. Uh, Picking, you know, uh, walnuts off a tree in the fall, cracking them open and eating them. So with a vacuum uh, desiccator, you suck air out, which allows you to dry food at low temperature. First thing Monday call the fishermen and see what what happened. Water is a polar substance. Now what that means is the charge is not evenly distributed. That's another way to say they stick together. I'm thinking about root vegetables in, in the fall and in the winter. I'm thinking about nuts dried nuts and berries. I'm thinking about uh, jams and syrups. I'm thinking about dried beans of all kinds of grains like lentils and uh, split peas. So then you cook it to perfect medium rare. Then you dunk it in liquid nitrogen. 
which freezes the outside. Then we deep fry it. We pop it in a deep fryer or use a torch on it. I'm Alice Waters, and I'm the owner of Chez Penny's Restaurant in Berkeley, California. And I'm also the founder of the Chez Penny's Foundation. Okay, well, I'm Nathan Mirvold, and uh, I'm both an inventor and a cookbook author. I trained as a physicist, and then I worked with Stephen Hawking on uh, quantum field theory and curved space-time and the origin of the universe. Alice Waters is the godmother of the slow food movement, the locally sourced back-to-nature feeding frenzy that's epitomized by her restaurant, Chez Panisse, in Berkeley, California. Waters might be the person most responsible for turning organic into a household word, for leading the charge to eat slow food, simple food, real food. We've been brainwashed ourselves uh, to think that that cooking is drudgery and that that we we need to go out and buy what what's quickly available that you know that fast cheap and easy and we think of everything that way when in fact uh, what is slow and delicious is what's really satisfying what is good for us. I, I think we've just gotten off that path and we need to come back to our senses and come back into that sort of river of civilization that, that has food as part of culture and agriculture. Beyond her restaurant, Waters' philosophy has been made manifest in a public school nutrition program and more than a dozen cookbooks. Nathan Mirvold is also a cookbook author. He's trained as a chef, even won a big barbecue award. But he does approach cooking a bit like, well, like a physicist. Cooking is an example of applied physics because, of course, heat, applying heat to food is the key technique in cooking. And the physics of heat conduction uh, whether uh, or heat radiation and convection, those are very important to cooking. Uh, chemistry is also important because uh, there are lots of different chemical reactions. Uh, that's why meat browns, for example. There's a reaction called the Maillard reaction, uh, first uh, described in the 19th century by a French physician. That's what makes meat brown. Mirvold used to be the chief technology officer of Microsoft. He graduated from high school at 14, had his Ph.D. by the time he was 23. Now he's in his early 50s, and he's become a bit of a polymath. He's an accomplished nature photographer and mountain climber. He collects rare books and rocket engines. After leaving Microsoft, he co-founded an invention company called Intellectual Ventures in Bellevue, Washington. The inventors on his staff are trying to come up with a better version of nuclear power, a better way to perform brain surgery. They're trying to stop hurricanes and global warming. Well, we have a whole diversity of both projects and people. Um, uh, right beside the, uh, uh, the kitchen is our insectary where we grow mosquitoes. And we grow mosquitoes because we have a number of anti-malaria projects. And you have to know your enemy. Uh, so, <laughs> so we grow malarial mosquitoes, and it's literally right beside the kitchen. We grow thousands of mosquitoes uh, so that we can test different ways to kill them, attract them, repel them. Um, our single most uh, dramatic way of doing it is 
a device that spots mosquitoes in the air and shoots them out of the sky with laser beams. And that that sounds like something from an Austin Powers movie, but by God, it works. That kitchen Mirvold keeps mentioning, it's not your standard little office kitchen, a microwave, a fridge, a hot plate. It's a culinary lab. Mirvold is part of a movement, a strange, fascinating, growing movement that's sometimes called molecular gastronomy or, less pompously, it's called modernist cuisine. He traces its roots to the mid-1980s when there were a handful of chefs, particularly a guy named Ferran Adria uh, in Spain, uh, started experimenting with techniques uh, that were pushed the envelope of what was possible in food. These chefs brought a lot of science into the kitchen. They used the tools of chemistry, physics, even engineering to build new textures, new sensations, to do things you might not have thought possible or advisable with food. So today, in some of the most expensive restaurants in the world, they produce some of the most sought-after dishes. Maybe you'd like to start with the white beet soup with liquid nitrogen-frozen crabapple spätzle. Then maybe you'll move on to the Bison pan-seared with bacon bits and tapioca starch alongside a dehydrated leek ring with a goat cheese sphere and chili powder on foamed carrot juice. And for dessert, maybe you'd like to smoke our virtual chocolate cake from a pipe. To put together his intellectual ventures kitchen, Mirvold recruited some chefs who appreciated modernist cuisine as much as he did, who looked at the kitchen as a place to experiment, to have fun, where you'll cut up a watermelon in a meat slicer, then vacuum-infused starch into its cells so that you can deep-fry yourself some watermelon potato chips, where you consider the hamburger, the humble hamburger, a piece of food that's worthy of a scientific overhaul. You have a problem with a hamburger if you'd like to have the meat cooked perfectly, at least I'd like it medium rare, but you also like the outside to be brown and crusty. And it's very hard to get the outside brown and crusty without having a fairly thick layer of sort of a grayish overcooked meat in there. And if you've ever bitten into a hamburger and looked at it, you'll see particularly a thin hamburger, there's only a very tiny amount that's actually medium rare. It turns out there's a way to solve that, and our ultimate hamburger... Um, is you take the hamburger, you cook it sous vide. Sous vide, that means under vacuum, when you seal food in a plastic bag and cook it very slowly in a warm water bath. So then you cook it to perfect medium rare, then you dunk it in liquid nitrogen, which freezes the outside. Then we deep fry it, we pop it in a deep fryer, or you use a torch on it, a blowtorch. And either one will give you this incredible crusty outside, but because you put it in liquid nitrogen, that prevents it from overcooking, so you get perfect medium-rare hamburger. We should make it clear here that Mirvold hasn't been doing all this experimental cooking just for kicks. Last year, he published a cookbook called Modernist Cuisine. Well, it is an encyclopedic treatment of the science of cooking, how cooking really works, um, and describes modern cooking techniques that have evolved over the course of the last 20 years. It's not your typical cookbook in ambition or size? Uh, six volumes, 2,400 pages, 3,500 color photographs, um, 1,600 recipes, 
Uh, my favorite statistic is if you took the text and you put it all in one line, just at the 10-point size, it would be six miles long. Modernist cuisine retails for $625, but you can get it cheaper on Amazon. So far, it's sold well over 20,000 copies. It was produced by a team of three dozen people, chefs, writers, editors, photographers. In it, you'll find all sorts of recipes as well as entire chapters on microbiology for cooks, the physics of food and water, and a chapter on foams. Bread is a foam. Uh, you may not think of it that way, but bread is what we classify as a set foam. Gas in the bread, which is created either by baking powder uh, or uh, created by yeast, uh, foams a dough, and then we heat it in the oven to set the starches and proteins. Uh, so a tremendous amount of cooking is about foams. We want to explain how do foams actually work? Talk about the uh, some of the physical acts involved in making the book. So we're looking at a, a photograph here on your screen, traditional cooking. And it seems to show, if I can tell without knowing, a cross-section of a pot with something that looks yes. hammy in it, perhaps. It's a pork roast. A pork roast. <laughs> okay. And, and it looks as though there's fire embers, coal, coal embers yep. above and below. Uh, so some kind it's of Dutch oven uh, It's in a cast iron Dutch oven. But we're looking into the pot as though we have 3D vision. It's a cutaway. So describe yes. how do you make that? So that was one of the key concepts in, in, uh, in the book was that we wanted to show people what happens inside the pot, inside the microwave oven, inside whatever uh, thing they're cooking in. And so we cut a lot of pots in half. We cut a whole microwave oven in half. We even cut a $5,000 professional um, steam oven in half in order to show people uh, what processes are going on during the cooking process. Presumably, there's not a lot of resale on a half of it, right? <laughs> yeah, we have two halves of one of the best kitchens <laughs> in the world now. That kitchen is pretty remarkable in that, you know, unlike your kitchen, they have all kinds of amazing tools. That's Pablos Holman. He's one of the inventors at Intellectual Ventures. They have a drill press and a bandsaw in the kitchen, but they also have a rotary evaporator and a homogenizer and a centrifuge and a pharmaceutical freeze dryer. Holman is not part of the team that produced the cookbook, but he did sit really close to the Intellectual Ventures kitchen. Um, and what they do is they make these really elaborate recipes. I mean, some of their recipes, their average is like 15 pages or something, and they'll spend like two weeks making something the size of a grape, <laughs> um, which is amazing. I mean, they can really do some amazing stuff. To be fair, Nathan Mirvold points out that about two-thirds of the recipes in modernist cuisine can be made in a regular kitchen as long as you've got an adventurous spirit and don't mind ordering some ingredients online. You should, however, be prepared for instructions like drop frozen cherry spheres into hot sodium alginate bath or blend in calcium gluconolactate and xanthan gum to fully disperse. And if you're making gel cubes from concentrated fruit, make sure you know the acidity level so you'll know whether to use sodium hexametaphosphate or methylcellulose E4M as your gelling agent. Sounds fun, doesn't it? I'll tell you one person who doesn't think molecular gastronomy is much fun. 
Alice Waters. I can't say that um, that I I care a lot about it. <laughs> I can't say that. And tell me why. I, uh, because I'm uh, I'm I'm trying to get back to a kind of a taste of food for what it is. Mm. And molecular gastronomy is trying to accomplish what, in your view? In my view, it's to, um, you know, make it into something you can't imagine, <laughs> you know, surprise you. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not to say that I, I, I haven't been uh, delightfully surprised. It's not that. It's that I, I, I am so hungry for the taste of the real that I, I, I'm, I'm just not able to get into that which doesn't feel real to me. It's a kind of scientific experiment and I think there are are good scientists and uh, you know crazy, crazy, crazy old scientists uh, that can be very amusing. You once said, uh, "Looking at food as entertainment—that's how we got into this mess." <laughs> can Can you explain that? What do you mean by that exactly? Well, that that we think that we really need to be amused at the table. I mean, it's kind of uh, taking your tray of food uh, and going and watching television while you're doing it, that you haven't been introduced to food in a way that is gratifying, either in terms of taste or the experience of the table. Waters is, however, familiar with Mirvold's book, and she doesn't entirely disapprove. Well, it's an astonishing project, I have to say, and definitely should be in every library. Um, I don't think we all need our own six volumes. Um, but someone who's this interested in gastronomy is somebody very valuable to us in general that we could educate ourselves. We need to know about the existence of that work and the time that went into it and the just we need to think about this. I'm, I'm just curious. I have to ask, have, have you ever eaten a Big Mac, let's say? I did one time actually. <laughs> I did. I went to Kansas and I was on the way to a board meeting at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. And I came in on a plane and hadn't eaten, and I thought I should get a little bite someplace before I went to the meeting. And I then I decided I would do this little experiment and went to McDonald's drive-thru. And in and out in five minutes. And? <laughs> and? How was it? I, well, for me, it didn't. It wasn't tasty in that way. I mean, it was soft bread and salty French fries, and I mean, really objectively, it was kind of nondescript. So Alice Waters doesn't like Big Macs at all, and she thinks people like Nathan Mirvold are mad scientists. Their pyrotechnics might be entertaining if you didn't have something better to do, if you didn't have maybe an open hearth where you can fry a free-range egg on a long-handled metal spoon 
and serve it over a salad of chives and tomatoes along with some organic bread. Alice Waters' idea of advancing the way we eat is to reconnect with the past, not only how our food is prepared, but how it's grown or raised or caught. What she's after, above all, is simplicity. Nathan Mirvold, for his part, loves Chez Panisse, Waters' restaurant, but he also loves complexity. And he loves bringing science into the kitchen because, he says, it's already there. Well, like it or not, physics happens, okay? So it it turns out when you heat um, a piece of meat, there's a set of physical principles that are at work. Uh, Wishing doesn't make the food hot. It's the way molecules bump into each other that makes it hot. And if you can understand that in a reasonable way, I think it informs how you do cooking. Now, is it possible to cook without understanding? Of course it is. Um, And for people that want to just in a rote way repeat exactly what they were told to do without understanding why it works – Hey, go for it. You don't, you don't need me. If you, all you want to do is repeat the recipes of the past and you have no curiosity as to how or why it works, uh, then you don't need to have uh, this physical understanding. On the other hand, I'd say, look, why does it ruin the experience to understand how and why it works? Nathan Mirvold and Alice Waters both have an obvious passion for the future of food, but radically different ways to realize that vision. Mirvold has a pharmaceutical freeze dryer that retails for $50,000. Waters doesn't even own a microwave. But the amazing thing is that her ideas have gained so much ground. A few decades ago, the organic food movement was fringe at best. Now, the USDA approves organic foods to be sold at Walmart. But what about Mirvold's experimental approach? Is supercharging your dinner with ingredients that are centrifuged at 60,000 RPM really worthwhile? Cutting a microwave in half is good for grins, but is that all? Is Mirvold's $600 cookbook just a new toy for the Tesla crowd? Or is there a chance that all his scientific inquiry might trickle down to you and me? Or, better yet, to the hundreds of millions of people who could care less about molecular gastronomy because they're too busy trying to scrounge up a bowl of rice so their kids don't go to bed hungry. And what if the future of food doesn't even involve cooking as we know it? And you just push one of those buttons, and the machine has toner cartridges of frozen or dried and powdered foods, and it goes down and puts a little pixel of powdered food down, hydrates it with a needle, zaps it with a laser to cook it, and rinse and repeat for every pixel, and uh, prints you a meal. Coming up, we talk some more to the well-fed inventor Pablos Holman about a revolutionary idea. Economics Radio is sponsored by Marriott. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the comforts of home. 
cook up a meal in a full kitchen, unpack and stay organized with the in-room Alpha closet system, plus bring your pet and have your best friend by your side. Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the amenities you need to feel at home during your stay. Find the comforts of home at Town Place Suites. Go there with Marriott Bonvoy. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Southern Company. As a national leader in carbon-free nuclear energy, Southern Company has a vision of a resilient energy future, and every day they're putting it in motion. That means balancing the responsibility and reliability of their existing infrastructure while also investing in carbon-free nuclear energy along with wind and solar power as an essential component of preserving our environment. With energy demand on the rise, their balanced approach to a net-zero future centers around creating jobs, helping communities thrive and meeting demand for carbon-free energy in a way that's affordable, reliable, and safe for all. Because a stronger and more equitable tomorrow is only possible through investments in our communities today. Learn more at southerncompany.com. From WNYC and APM, American Public Media, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. Here's Pablos Holman again, the Intellectual Ventures inventor. He made his name as a hacker. You know, what hackers are good for is just discovering what's possible, right? I mean, the mindset of a hacker, you know, they're good at figuring out all the things that are possible that, you know, the manufacturer never intended, It's kind of like being a scientist, just without all the formal training and accountability. Here are some of the projects that Holman has worked on. Commercial spaceflight, building the world's smallest computer, making self-sterilizing elevator buttons for hospitals, and trying to stop hurricanes from reaching land. Last year, I tried to cure cancer, which didn't work out. Holman isn't what you'd call a foodie, but for the past few years at Intellectual Ventures, Holman sat right next to the big experimental kitchen where Nathan Mirvold and his comrades try out their new modernist recipes. I mean, I laughed out loud. They made me um, some foamed baked potato, and it tastes like baked potato with butter and bacon bits and chives and everything in there, but it was foam. And I took a bite of it, and I just lit up. I couldn't believe how good it was. (laughs) Holman's proximity to the kitchen lab got him thinking a bit more about how Americans eat. And it didn't take long to spot a lot of inefficiencies. Behind every supermarket, there's a dumpster full of expired food and pounds and pounds of packaging. By some estimates, between one-third and one-half of all food produced in America is never eaten. The inefficiency is consolidated around the last mile of how we eat. So we're really good at, at efficiency on an industrial scale. We're good at 
agriculture and we're good at agricultural efficiency, we are not good at efficiency in the last mile where we take the take those ingredients and prepare them and serve them. Holman decided to do something about it. So, you know, my original vision was this kind of ATM machine that you walk up to and it shows you three buttons. What I ate yesterday, what my friends like, or I'm feeling lucky. And you just push one of those buttons and the machine has toner cartridges of frozen or dried and powdered foods. And it goes down and puts a little pixel of powdered food down, hydrates it with a needle, zaps it with a laser to cook it, and rinse and repeat for every pixel, and uh, prints you a meal. Doesn't that sound absurd? Kind of how it must have sounded absurd when someone suggested an ATM dispensing cash instead of a bank teller. What Holman has in mind is essentially a 3D printer that can print food. Now, 3D printers have been around for years. They're called rapid prototypers. In fact, Intellectual Ventures already uses them to make plastic models of a brain aneurysm so the neurosurgeon can study its shape and size before cutting through the patient's skull. What if you could use a rapid prototyper to print food? So what would happen is, just like an inkjet printer you have at home, instead of putting down droplets of ink, I'm putting down droplets of food, right? But I control every single pixel, right? I can use a laser to cook a pixel of food and get it exactly as warm as I want, exactly as slow or as fast as I want. I think by comparison, what has been done uh, in cooking is, is Neanderthal, right? It's very primitive. I mean, we, we don't have that kind of resolution and control of our cooking. And there's a lot of other advantages. So in this system... Um, you know, all my ingredients are prepared on an industrial scale and they are preserved at the point of origin. If you go to the best restaurants in the world, they don't serve you market fresh produce. They serve you produce that was ripened on the tree and picked ripe and flash frozen on site. And that's because that's the optimal way to preserve all the flavor and all the nutrition and ingredients that are in there. And so... What I want to do is bring that to everybody. So in my system, all the ingredients come from the farm directly off the tree. They're frozen or dried on site and powdered. And so I take that. I put it in a sealed toner cartridge. The FedEx guy comes by once a day and swaps out the empties in the machine. And so when it's making you a meal, it's using uh, optimally preserved ingredients. If you're thinking that Holman sounds like someone who's just read too much science fiction. Well, yeah. You know, chefs can be designing meals in CAD programs and they can print out, you know, tessellated 3D fractal, you know, uh, hamburgers if they want, right? <laughs> I mean, you can do something here that's not been possible before. I can make a meal where, you know, maybe you have a meal the size and shape of a Snickers bar or something, but you start at one end with an appetizer and you work your way through a uh, entree and then end up with dessert at the other end. But the more you listen to him, or at least the more I listen to him, the more you realize how thoroughly he's thought this through. And even if the invention he eventually winds up with is only 1% as good as he's hoping for, it seriously might start to change the world. When I'm printing you a meal, I have total control over what's in there. So when I print your meal, I get 
your allergens accounted for, any dietary restrictions are avoided. I might incorporate your pharmaceuticals. I might be sending a report back to your doctor that you know, you're getting exactly the right dosage of these things every day. And then I can do really cool things. Once you're eating from printers like this, I mean, the, the fundamental part is that we've networked your food consumption. And now we know a lot more about what you eat, and we can use that to help you out. So we can have apps that wean you off of uh, sodium or cholesterol, things that uh, you might be having a problem with now. Just imagine if you had a problem with too much sodium. Well, I can just ratchet it down a few milligrams a day over the next few months uh, to get you down to you know closer to zero, right? And you'll never even notice it's happening because everything, every time you eat something, it'll taste exactly like what I had yesterday. It just won't taste exactly like what you had last month. Those possibilities don't exist in the way we eat now. Networked food consumption. Eliminating food waste by producing just-in-time meals, which potentially could also help keep you healthier. Yeah, it sounds like science fiction, but think about how our current food system might have looked to someone 100 years ago. To someone who ate a piece of meat once a week if he was lucky. To a mom who could only count on feeding her family whatever happened to be in the root cellar. And no, children... You won't be having any fresh calcium-fortified orange juice from Florida or Brazil this morning or any other morning. Science has already changed the way we eat a great deal, and it will continue to do so. How? I can't predict the future. What I can say is that the kind of changes that will make Pablos Holman and Nathan Mirvold happy probably won't make Alice Waters very happy. We need to come back to our senses and come back into that sort of river of civilization that has food as part of culture and and, and, and agriculture. By the way, Pablos Holman is not alone in thinking about a food printer. A group of engineers at Cornell has got a prototype in the hands of a New York chef. And can you imagine how nice it would be to have a few of these printers or maybe a few hundred or thousand food printers that you could airlift into some disaster zone after a hurricane or an earthquake? All right, Pablos, one last question. What did you have for dinner last night? So last night I had a um, – uh, I live in Seattle and on the, there's parts of town where on the street. They have street vendors selling hot dogs and with cream cheese and I love those things. They're unbelievably good. (laughs) A hot dog with cream cheese. That may not be your idea or my idea of a great meal, but you know what? It works for Pablos Holman. And not just the food itself, but the very, very low opportunity cost. It was fast, you know. Took me probably three minutes to buy it and eat it. And, uh, you know, those other 57 minutes of that hour that, that somebody else might have spent shopping or cleaning or cooking, um, you know, I got to spend salsa dancing. Coming up, we stop eating and start tweeting. And we ask... How social do you have to be in a social network? I would say that it's almost a status symbol to be followed by many people and follow very few.
Freakonomics Radio explores the hidden side of everything. Sponsoring the Freakonomics podcast could help nearly a million listeners a week discover your business. Email us at sponsorship at wnyc.org. So, Levitt, when we first thought about starting a Twitter account for Freakonomics, um, a couple smart media consultants told me that uh, it would be very poor form to expect people to follow us unless we followed a lot of people as well, that it was, there was really a reciprocity at work here. And, and we didn't follow that advice. And we, we follow zero people on our Twitter account. Um, how, how do you feel about that? We have a Twitter account? <laughs> so Steve Levitt and I, he's my Freakonomics friend and co-author, we did start a Twitter account, but we aren't what you'd call aggressive tweeters. We don't tell people what we had for breakfast or what show we're watching on TV or which kid lost which tooth. In fact, all we really do is send out links to our blog posts or this radio show, stuff like that. But here's the thing. We have a lot of followers, at least what seems to me like a lot of followers, roughly 400,000 people. Now, that probably doesn't really mean much. It costs nothing to follow someone on Twitter. All you have to do is click your mouse one time. A lot of those people probably never read a single thing we tweet. Still, it's kind of cool. But as I told Levitt, we don't follow anyone on Twitter. It just seemed like if you're going to follow some people, then you'd feel bad about not following other people. Next thing you know, you're spending your whole day on Twitter figuring out who to follow, who to be followed by. So for us, Twitter is a one-way street. It's a little bullhorn, nothing else. So here's a question for you. Does that make us jerks? Or, since we're talking about Twitter, does that make us twerks? Do you think that Freakonomics should start following people on Twitter? Okay, my name is Duncan Watts. I'm a principal research scientist at Yahoo Research, uh, where I run a group called the Human Social Dynamics Group. And uh, we're interested in all sorts of questions that have to do with social networks uh, and how information diffuses through social networks, how people influence each other, and how all of this uh, helps us to understand uh, social behavior. Duncan Watts is a sociologist who taught at Columbia before moving on to Yahoo. He's at the forefront of what's called network theory, how people are connected, whether in person or virtually, and what those connections yield. He's written a few books, Six Degrees, a sort of academic take on the Kevin Bacon thing, and more recently a book called Everything is Obvious Once You Know the Answer. It's about common sense and how it lets us down. Watts still writes academic papers, too. One recent paper is called Who Says What to Whom on Twitter. It's true that, you know, there are millions of, of users on Twitter who are listening to millions of other users. Uh, but we also find that there's a remarkable concentration of attention. So about 50% um, of all tweets that a random person on Twitter receives on any given day come from uh, just 20,000 users, right? So that's about uh, one half of one-tenth of a percent of all the users on Twitter. What do you call this as a sociologist then in terms of the distribution? Well, it's a skewed distribution, mm -hmm. you know, but you certainly see this kind of uh, distribution in activity. If you look at, uh, you know, how active people are on Twitter, you see the same thing where there's a small number of people who are very, very active. Were you surprised to find a concentration that intense? Well, 
I mean, we are used to seeing these skew distributions, so I yeah, think yeah. not in principle. Uh, it was still striking just how concentrated it was. It, it, it may be more striking to people who don't know what these distributions usually look like. I, I mean, it may be more surprising to people who've been hearing for, for the past couple of years that Twitter is the great democratization of communication. And, and it is. But what happens in democracies is that everybody <laughs> pays attention to the same people. Um, you know, so I, I think that, that, that uh, it, it might change our view of democratization. Last year, during the Arab Spring uprisings, Twitter helped stoke the fires of revolution. But those were extraordinary circumstances. Under ordinary circumstances, what we see is that a relatively tiny group of people on Twitter wield most of the power. Remind you of any place else you know, like the offline world? Duncan Watts says he became a sociologist to study exactly this kind of thing. Whose voices get heard in social situations, how people in groups interact, how groups form, how firms form, how markets form. This is the kind of thing that sociologists have been fascinated with since the beginning of sociology. Trouble is, it's always been hard to quantify. The problem is that, uh, you know, actually measuring any of this, observing any of this has been historically impossible. So although, you know, we have theories about social networks that go back, you know, 50 or 60 years and the sort of, you know, quantitative study of social networks goes back almost as long, uh, in practice, it's been restricted to very small groups of people. Uh, as many statics. people as you could hit with a clipboard and a questionnaire, or something, something like, like that. that right? right? You know, you're asking. You know, you're handing out survey tools, or you're, or you know, in some great, you know, some of the classic studies, you know, uh, sociologists would even sort of sit in a in a donut shop and record painstakingly every single time a person talked to another person, and then they would sort of extract the communication uh, network out of these interactions <laughs> that they observe, which is very which creative. Today se- well, but yeah. today seems extremely archaic, right? I mean, well, it is. The sample size is tiny. The sample pollution, I guess, is strong, depending on which coffee shop you happen yeah. to pick, right? And you can only do it for, you know, until your, your brain explodes, which is, you know, <laughs> in, for most humans, a couple of hours. So, uh, so you can't really sort of measure anything or observe anything that's happening over extended periods of time. The mountains of data being generated in an online ecosystem like Twitter are enough to make a sociologist like Duncan Watts put down his clipboard and drool. Twitter has about 100 million active users, sending out more than 250 million tweets. That's 250 million data points every day. Even from those broad numbers, you can tell. For every aggressive user tweeting, let's say, 20 times a day, there's an army of folks who just sit still, keep quiet. Or maybe who signed up because everyone else is signing up, the way everybody used to sign up to write a blog and then abandoned it. But if you're a sociologist, even these things are good to know. Social network sites like Twitter and Facebook are changing the way academics see the world. What we're seeing is actually not different from how people behave offline. It's just that we have a a vastly increased ability to observe it. And so it, it sort of seems different. Um, you know, people uh, seem to think that they have many more friends now uh, because of Facebook than they used to have, uh, and that at the same time, the quality of those friendships has somehow diminished, particularly in, in the media. People are sort of wringing their hands over how, you know, friendship has become somehow diluted. But for most people, this is actually not true, 
right? For most ordinary Facebook users, uh, the people that they're friends with on Facebook are, in fact, people that they know, right? Now, many of them may actually not be uh, close friends. Uh, and without Facebook around, they may not have a record of these interactions existing. And so if you ask them in a pre-Facebook world how many friends they had, they probably would say, oh, you know, a few dozen or something, right? Because they would just be thinking about people who they really count as friends. But now we have Facebook to remind us that we have all these kind of this sort of vastly larger halo of peripheral relationships. Uh, and so we sort of feel like we have more friends and somehow that they're less uh, real than the ones we used to have. But actually, we always had them. So there's sort of an interesting kind of measurement effect here where mm. you, you, you simply allow people to measure things and it changes their perception of those things. So it, it's sort of, you know, I don't want to say that nothing is different online because clearly there are things that are different and it may just be because it's anonymity. So right. it's anonymity that- is strong, but he, he, I mean, you're, you're right. And the, the division or the, the gap can be even something less um, profound than anonymity. Like, if you're driving in your car and somebody cuts you off, you might flip them the bird or do what? But right. if walking on the street and they cut you off on the sidewalk, the physical proximity changes right. everything. That's, so, a, that's a great analogy. And in fact, you know, there's a, the, I'm sure you're familiar with the, uh, the classic obedience studies of Stanley Milgram back in the 1950s. And he found exactly this kind of result. Uh, the subject of the experiment was told that he was conducting a learning experiment on, on, on someone else who, who turned out to be an actor. And he was supposed to be giving this person electric shocks uh, whenever they made a mistake. And so the actor was sort of pretending to be, you know, getting more and more uh, tortured by these shocks. And, and the shocking result uh, was that a remarkable number of people cranked up the, the voltage to, to sort of um, uh, lethal levels simply because some experimenter was telling them to do that. Now, what a, a, a lesser known uh, result of those experiments is that Milgram tried a bunch of different um, uh, conditions. You know, in one case, they, they actually had to sit there and hold the subject's hand on the plate. Um, and so they were sort of physically in contact with the person they were shocking. In another one, the guy was visible, but in another room, in another one, he was uh, on the other side of a wall. So you could hear him, but you couldn't see mm. him. And sure enough, the further that person was away, the more sort of socially distant they were, the more inclined people were to, mm. um, to exercise what seemed like I cruelty. I didn't know that. That's interesting. So I, I yeah. think this, it's an excellent point that you raise. Coming up. What do Barack Obama and Yoko Ono have in common? And why is Justin Halpern way cooler than either of them? I'm your biggest fan, I'll follow you until you love me. Papa, Papa Roxy. Baby, there's no other superstar, you know that I'll be. You Papa, Papa Roxy. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, package lists, and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday 
and over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Redfin. Whether you need to buy or sell a home or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin has got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even the same day with a local Redfin agent. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents get you the best price possible for your home. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From WNYC and APM, American Public Media, this is Freakonomics Radio. Here's your host, Stephen Dubner. There's a website called Twitterholic that's full of Twitter statistics. If you like Twitter at all, you have to go to this site. You can thank me later. It shows Lady Gaga with the most followers, 17.6 million, and Justin Bieber is second with 16 million. The entire top 10 is made up of pop stars, except for Kim Kardashian, who I guess isn't quite a pop star, at number four. And at number seven, President Barack Obama, who's got 11.7 million followers. But here's what's interesting. If you resort the top 10, not by number of followers, but by the number of people that they follow, you come up with a very different list. Only Britney Spears and President Obama remain in the top 10. The president follows 684,000 people. In fact, three of the top 11 followers in the world are politicians. Obama, British Prime Minister David Cameron, and former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. Such generous people, these politicians. And who's the most generous follower on Twitter? That would be Yoko Ono. She follows about 740,000 people and has about 1.7 million followers herself. So that's one follow for every 2.3 followers, which made me wonder, if you want a lot of Twitter followers, do you need to follow a lot of people yourself? I asked Duncan Watts to look into the numbers for the top 1,000 users. His conclusion? There's no trend, no correlation between following and being followed. But still, if our online lives are really just an extension of our offline lives, just as a matter of common courtesy, shouldn't you reciprocate? Uh, my name is Justin Halpern, and I created 
my dad says, and uh, I'm author of a book by the same name and uh, one of the writers of the television show by the same name. All right. And, and Justin, how would you then assess the importance of Twitter in your life and career? I would say it is possibly the most important thing aside from my father. <laughs> um, without Twitter, I, I, uh, I definitely don't think any of what has just happened in my life happens. I'm afraid if we get internet, I'll have to move to higher ground. Here's the blurb from Halpern's Twitter page. Quote, I'm 29. I live with my 74-year-old dad. He is awesome. I just write down that he says. Halpern's dad says has attracted a lot of readers, nearly 3 million followers on Twitter. It was his Twitter feed that led to the book that led to the TV show. He has more Twitter followers than Arnold Schwarzenegger, J.K. Rowling, and the NFL. But what I wanted to know is how many people does he follow? Uh, I only follow one person. Who do you follow? (laughs) Uh, I only follow LeVar Burton. Of, of Reading Rainbow uh, fame. <laughs> Reading Rainbow fame and also Star Trek The Next Generation fame, Roots fame. That's true. I, I, I did not give him enough uh, accolades. And you thought, if I'm going to follow one person, LeVar Burton seems to be deserving of that honor. I, uh, yeah, I didn't I – didn't, uh, yeah, I, I did think that. <laughs> and uh, at, at the time that you decided to follow LeVar Burton and LeVar Burton only, how many followers did you have? I had zero. <laughs> oh, so yeah. this was before shit my dad says was shit my dad says even. It was. It was. It was this is when shit my dad says was was uh, read by me and one friend who didn't have a Twitter account. So forgive my ignorance on this score, but I see that you generally at least in the last year let's say you haven't tweeted very much, maybe 50 tweets in the past year, which look, if you can build a brand called shit my dad says out of shit your dad says and just do it in 50 posts a year, that means that you're wonderfully efficient and economical. But back in the day, were you tweeting a lot more? I was. When I first started, I was, I was, I was living with him and, and normally sitting next to him for like eight to ten hours a day working. So uh, I was getting a lot of stuff and I would, I would tweet like, you know, one thing a day. And, and then since I've been working and I, and I, haven't, been, uh, I haven't been near him as much, it, it, it goes down. Have people contacted you, though, over the years and said, hey, you know, you've become a big deal guy now with my dad says and I follow you and I like it. But, man, you only follow one guy and it's another famous guy. That's just not fair. Do people give you trouble <laughs> for that? Yeah, I got one 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 message was, uh, who do you think you are to only follow one person? Uh, and I didn't really have a response to that other than I don't think I'm anybody. <laughs> I just only follow LeVar Burton. <laughs> so Justin Halpern has had incredible success on Twitter, which is a social media ecosystem, by essentially being antisocial. Uh, is there anything wrong with that? If people like to follow him, who are we to say that he has to reciprocate? At least he's not what Twitter insiders call the one-night stand, where you sign up to follow lots of people, hoping they'll follow you back, and then you dump them a day later. Here's Duncan Watts again. I I think uh, Justin Halper might be more the exception than the rule. Uh, I think that there are sort of bona fide Twitter-generated celebrities, people who were not known uh, beforehand, who became known through their activity on Twitter. Although even Justin Halpern, you know, probably wouldn't be nearly as famous 
as he is if you know he hadn't got a a, a book deal that became a bestseller <laughs> and a TV show and so so you know you're always sort of uh, you know you, you one of the dangers of studying a single you know platform like Twitter is that you see a signal on it and you want to sort of understand the cause uh, you know why did somebody become popular and the answer often lies outside of the system that you're studying so. Most of the, I think all of the top 10 most followed people are are household names. I mean, these are people who were famous before Twitter came along and they're still famous. Um, and they're famous not because of Twitter, but because they're on TV all the time and they're in all the celebrity magazines. And there's a whole sort of, you know, much, much larger media ecosystem that is is sort of constantly putting them in our in our faces. But let me ask you this. If if you look at the very top tweeters, it's true that they are very much household names to so the nth degree with many millions of followers. But at least a couple of them, including our president, also follow a lot of people. He has 11.7 million followers, but he follows more than 680,000 people. Now, we assume he's not actually reading their tweets. So what's what's the point? Well, so again, it's it's worth emphasizing again here that Twitter is not a social network. Now, social networks are characterized by very, very high levels of reciprocity. So if I say that I'm friends with you, it's very likely that you will also say that you're friends with me. It's not always true, but it's very often the case that... And if not, then I stop being a participant in that social network. It's a funny kind of friendship if only one person thinks that it exists. Okay. So Mm. uh, whereas in in communication uh, uh, networks, it's totally different. You know, you know, the entire nation can watch Barack Obama give the State of the Union address, but he can't, you know, watch everybody's YouTube videos. True. Right? So there's True a- enough. But what would be the what would the purpose be then if I'm Barack Obama and I have a Twitter feed um, and I have I or someone around me, presumably not me myself, yep. has, has come to the conclusion that um, we should tweet uh, to, you know, get our message out. It makes perfect yep. sense and we should get millions of followers because we're communicators yep. uh, almost above all. But also, why do I want to follow 700,000 people? What's in it for me? Is it just the the appearance of reciprocity that is supposed to translate into mm-hmm. some general feeling of goodwill? Well, I actually think that my, my, my guess is that, that different kinds of users have uh, different reasons for using Twitter. Let me ask you this. Um, there are some people then who are followed by a great, great, great many people and yet who follow nobody. Mm-hmm. So for instance, Stephen Colbert is followed by more than 2 million people. It's a lot of Twitter followers yep. and follows zero. What do you, first of all, do you have a name for people like that? And, <laughs> and what, what, what can you say about them? Well, uh, you know, putting on my amateur armchair psychologist hat here, um, I, I would say that it's almost a status symbol to be followed by many people and follow uh, and follow very few. It's sort of like having lots of followers, even though you don't tweet very much. It's sort of like, well, I'm not even really trying, you know, and I'm still popular. Um, uh, so, uh, but you know, I, I, I'm going to again guess that there are, you know, sort of there. These are all individual people with their own agendas and psychologies and. Uh, uh, you know, there, there's probably as many reasons for these patterns as as there are people. Not even trying and still popular. Wow. Is that how we want to be? I've seen firsthand how successful Justin Halpern is, and he only follows Jordy LaForge. 
I heard Duncan Watts say that you don't necessarily have to follow to be followed. Still, is that how Freakonomics should behave on Twitter? Steve Levitt and I had a summit the other day. We talked it over. Well, I would say, given that neither you nor I has ever gone on Twitter other than to send out our blog posts, that why don't we follow everyone? Since we don't look at what they're saying anyway, and if it makes people feel good to follow them, why not follow every single person on Twitter? That could be our claim to fame, is that we follow every person on Twitter. As long as we never look at the account, it won't cost us anything. I like it. I like the strategy. Or, alternately, we could follow one person. We could pick one, dedicate ourselves to that person's feed, and really pay attention. So if, if it were one, who would you want to follow? Lindsay Lohan. Who would you follow? Who would I follow? I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd auction it off. I'd say, we haven't followed anybody. It's time for us to follow someone. What's the highest bidder? The strangest thing to me about Twitter is I'd never been on Twitter. And I went on and I had a Twitter account. And it had one tweet. And it had my picture. And it was from me. And I don't. And some person faked it. I don't know why they stopped after one, but they've only did one post. They still had, you know, a couple thousand followers from that one post. So maybe, um, maybe it's time for that person to get busy and start doing some more posts as me. What was the tweet that the fake Steve Levitt tweeted? It was the traditional first tweet. Here I am, time to get going on Twitter, something like that. So what does that say to you, though, that you, you got a fake Steve Levitt out there who, who makes one totally worthless tweet and it gets a thousand or two followers. What's that say to you about the value of time that people engage in the Twitter atmosphere? Well, I'm, I'm offended that the guy didn't do more posts. I want to see what I have to say. Freakonomics Radio is produced by WNYC, APM, American Public Media, and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Susie Lechtenberg and Jeff Mosenkis. Our staff includes Diana Wynn, Catherine Wells, Beret Lamb, and Chris Bannon. Our engineer is David Herman. Colin Campbell is our executive producer. If you want more Freakonomics Radio, subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes and go to Freakonomics.com where you'll find lots of radio, a blog, the books, and more. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan-favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... 
I have a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. 